0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, welcome. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to say welcome to all of you joining us online this morning as we continue in our series entitled Rooted, where we have been for the last three weeks. We're in week four of this series where the understanding, the idea is that all living things grow, right? And so with us as Christians connected to Jesus, we want to grow in Him, But we want to make sure we're rooted in the right things so that we might grow in the right way. And so we want to see that. And we've been looking at these parables and these parts of Scripture. And as Pastor Tyler alluded to uh, back at the beginning of the series, that a lot of these texts have to do with farming and agriculture, which was a, a great illustration to be used in the time to teach biblical truths and biblical principles and stuff and so Jesus continues here teaching through a parable centered around agriculture and farming and a vineyard and we're going to look at that but our takeaway might be a little bit different than the last several weeks all right and so if you have a bible Why don't you join me in Matthew chapter 21? Matthew chapter 21, if you have a Bible, go to the middle of the Bible, move to the very first uh, book of the New Testament, you're going to find Matthew, the book of Matthew, and go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Let me give you kind of the big picture background as you're turning there. Beginning here and into chapter 22, Jesus is going to be challenged as to his authority. And so Jesus is going to teach three parables about God's judgment on those who don't point others to the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming throughout his ministry on earth. And then in chapter 22, he's going to interact with those religious leaders who are challenging his authority, and it leads Jesus to actually revealing his identity as the Son of God, which therefore reveals his authority over all. Okay. And so also chapter 21 begins Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, leading him to Point where he's going to be crucified and killed and buried and resurrected, and we're going to celebrate uh, his uh, crucifixion and remember that today at the end of our time through communion, and so that's kind of gives you the idea. Starting here in chapter 21, and so I want to jump into the second parable. So verses 33 through 41 to start with. We're going to go through the end of the chapter though. So let's look at this first part. Jesus says. Hear another parable. He's basically saying, listen, listen as I teach you this, listen as I say this to you. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Verse 36. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Verse 39. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Verse 41. And they said to him, he will put those wretches wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. All right, let me break down kind of what's happening. Let's break down the scene here as in see how it connects to us. So the master of the house, the landowner, is God the father. All right? The vineyard is God. the, The tenants of the vineyard is God's people. All right? It's Israel. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the fruit of the harvest is repentance, a righteous, obedient life, right? The tenant farmers in the vineyard, again, are the chief priests. They are the Pharisees that have set up to tend the vineyard of God. The servants there that are sent by the landowner, by the master of the house, are the prophets that God has sent over the years to Israel. And then you get probably to the most important piece, the son of the landowner is Jesus, now, imagine how on edge as the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the others that were gathered around there are probably at this point, particularly the religious leaders, in hearing this parable. I mean, this is right after, if you look back in chapter 21, this is right after Jesus had cleared the temple, right, with a, you know, the temple square with a whip, where he'd said, My, my father's house will be a house of prayer, right, where he flipped the tables over and everything, right, where he ran everybody out. So you can imagine how on edge as he's, teaching through these parables. And then understand that what started the set of parables that he's teaching here. Here was the question posed to Jesus in Matthew 21, verse 23, the second half of 23. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus basically has this interaction with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And And he says, well, I'll tell you what, if you answer my question, then I will answer your question about Authority, whose authority I'm doing this on. Well, they don't answer his question. So Jesus simply says, well, I'm not going to tell you then. You didn't answer my question. But what does he do? Jesus isn't going to leave the question unanswered. He sets before them. He starts right into these parables. The first one Jesus gives that we're not looking at today is, is a question about two contrasting pieces that happen. And then he asks them a question. This second one is the one we're looking at. He does answer their question, and they kind of get it, which we'll see at the end. And here's our takeaway this morning. Here's our takeaway from what we're going to see in this parable. God's patient love. God's patient love. So Jesus tells this story. And surely one of Jesus' great concerns is to show the spiritual leaders of Israel and to those that were there around them, the unbelieving part of Israel as to the hardness of their hearts that they have had and and continue to have towards God. That's his heart right here. God has sent prophets to them. God has sent John the Baptist to them. If you look, again, back at the first parable, Jesus brings that up. In, In fact, you know, he sent... And then God sends his own son, as Jesus talks about in this parable, right? And each one of those experienced rejection. In fact, in verse 32... Right before our parable, it says, you know, it says that they, they, they wouldn't understand, they wouldn't believe. Even when they saw it, they still wouldn't believe it. Like it was in front of them, but they still wouldn't believe him and be changed by the truth. As he was talking about John the Baptist. And yet even as Jesus points to all this, we see the love of God displayed throughout the parable. In fact, I think we see God's love and patience are unparalleled to human experience, right? In the human experience. Even as we see the consequences of a hardened heart of sin. A sin that leads to and continues to have rebellion towards God and God's love. Verse 33, did you notice the love that God has? The the love shown by the master of the house. Look, Look at his kindness in verse 33. Look at what he's done. He's planted a vineyard, right? He, he protected the vineyard by putting a fence around it. He he dug a wine press in the vineyard to produce, right? He he built a watchtower for shelter and for security, for storage. It begins with God's work toward us. It always has. That is God's work towards us. It's always been that way. God moved toward us and invited us into and invites us into his presence. Even from the person who's farthest away, God continues to invite in a patient, loving position, invite into his presence. And then as Jesus explains the setup, you get into verses 34 to 39 and you, you look into this and you see his exaggerated patience of the landowner. He sent his, his servants to go get the, the fruit, right? This is, this is what he, they were to, to get, to, to have when they got there. And, and all of a sudden, they're killed. So instead of sending an army to take out those tenants who killed his servants, what's he do? He sends more to the point that he sends... His son, some of us who read that might say, well, that's unbelievable, right? No, nobody would act that way. That's the point. Like none of us on earth in our human experience and in our, in our condition would act that way. After they killed our first group of friends, we wouldn't send a second group of friends. And after they killed the second group of friends, we surely wouldn't send our, our, our children. That's the point, Right? That this is, this is God's exaggerated love towards them, right? No human landowner would show that kind of loving patience. So what Jesus is saying is that if God had done what he could have done, in his justice, which he was perfectly okay to do, every time they had rebellion against the prophets, then God could have rained down heaps of stones over top of them. But he didn't. This is a a posture of love for Jesus to present this to them. Jesus says that God is love, who is everlasting. He's patient. Unlike anything in our human experience. This God continues in love. He continued in his love, his grace. Through the prophets, through the Old Testament, you read about the prophets. And how many times God sent his, his people to call them home again. Presented the invitation to come home. And every time they reject, and he would send more, and every time they reject. And finally, he sends his son, and what do they do? They reject his son. Jesus is highlighting in the, in the details of the parable the greatness of the love and patience of God, right? It's one of the most beautiful pictures of grace. We're impatient people, right? We're very impatient. We live in an instant gratification world. We all want it now. And yet God waits patiently in his love for us. Let me ask you a question. How was God patient with you before you responded to the invitation that Jesus presented? I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple, if you think back to your time prior to that collision with Christ where you became new, you think about... My gosh, in all those times, God could have just brought judgment because I deserved it. But He didn't, because He was patient with me, continuing to call and to woo me. Maybe you're here right now, and you haven't responded to that call. And God's been patient with you. Today's the day. Don't wait, come home. Think about this. How is God patient with you right now? As a Christian, as a believer, how is he patient with you right now? What areas is God extending his patient love towards you? And you know it. We know it. Charles Spurgeon said this about about Jesus. He said, if you reject him... He answers you with tears, which we know that Jesus lamented over Israel. He wanted to gather them as his, as his own. This person says if you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus' love made manifest. So listen, God sends servant after servant his prophets, and then his Son, because he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. That is not something God delights in. God delights in in sinners turning, repenting, coming to him, acknowledging the wrong and the rebellion and the sin and and the ways against God, and acknowledging that, asking forgiveness, asking for mercy, and coming unto him converted through a belief and a repentance in Jesus Christ. So Jesus, even as he gives this warning to the Pharisees, which he's doing, right, and to the chief priests, and even to Israel as they're standing around there, is showing them a glorious picture of how much God is wanting to pour out upon them the blessing of being with him if they'll just recognize their sin and turn and repent. It's amazing grace. And then you get to the last part of the text that we just read, and Jesus he, he's going to speak about the authority, but it's going to be subtle, right? He actually gets them to point out the authority. So, so when you're reading this parable, when you're reading this text, you, you get to a point where you think, and you ask yourself, well, why would they think, why would they think that they could inherit the field by killing the son? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Well, what had happened is they had reasoned because, again, it was unimaginable. That the owner of the field, of the vineyard, would have sent others, not his son. He might have sent servants twice. The third time, he wouldn't have sent his son. Like, you, you don't send your son, especially after you hear what happened to the first two groups, right? So they have reasoned that the owner must be dead, and that the only heir to the vineyard was the son. And so if they kill the son, they can immediately assume that... that that this is their land now, like they can go and get the land and inherit the land right that's that 's where they were at that 's how they responded and that's that 's where that 's what was happening here in this text and so the point that Jesus was making is that they 've forgotten something they 've forgotten that the vineyard is god's it 's not theirs. see they assumed in their response that that they were you know, would inherit the land. And Jesus says, well, what do you think the owner would do when he comes to those tenants? In verse 41 they said, well he'll put those wretches to a miserable death, right? And he'll put the vineyard into someone else's hands. What they didn't realize at the moment had, is that they were pronouncing judgment on themselves. Like that was their own sentence. Jesus got them in his authority and in his majesty as God to, to speak their own judgment. And yet they still didn't understand. And the point Jesus is trying to make is that they've forgotten the vineyard is not yours, it's God's. They're treating the vineyard as if it belongs to them, when in fact it belongs to God and to his son. And instead of bowing the knee to the son, what have they tried to do? They have tried to usurp his authority, and they place themselves in God's place. Isn't that what we do? When we don't listen to the word of God, we don't allow the word of God to shape or form our lives, what do we do? We put ourselves in the position of authority instead of God's word. See, when you call Jesus Lord, you bow a knee. He's Lord over our lives. We then listen, and we read, and we acknowledge, and we learn, and we grow, and we root ourselves in his direction and word and truth and reality, not our own. But isn't it true that we sometimes find ourselves doing this too, where we stand up from that bowing position And we kind of take over the throne again in certain areas of our lives instead of always allowing the word to sit on top of us as a guide to keep us within the will and the work of God. And I say that so that we don't get so disconnected from this text thinking it's not about us. And so we see a picture of a heart of rebellion against Scripture, against the prophets, against the Son, which they were guilty of for sure. And yet he still comes to us. He still comes. We do well to remember that it's all his, right? It's all his, all of it. All we have is his. And when we we get that, produces in us a posture, humility, that works out of us. Even in our rebellion, he comes. God, the greatest giver, so loved, the greatest motive, the world, the greatest need. That he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, the greatest invitation, believes in him, the greatest opportunity, should not perish, the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life, the greatest joy. Again, understand this parable is for us. This parable is for any people who have experienced the faith privileges where the word of God has been given to us, and we have it. And if you don't have a copy of the Word of God, let us know. We have Bibles. We have some really nice leather ones that people just leave behind that we can give to you. We have the privilege of the Word of God given to us. We have the privileges of a faithful ministry given to us. And in the face of those privileges, if we harden our heart, if we rebel against God's Word, then we're standing right where they stood. Or to put off... Responding for those who are far from home. Put off responding when it's presented, when the invitation is presented as the, as the prophets presented over and over to Israel to come home again. As, as Jesus is trying to present to the to religious leaders, the spiritual leaders here, come home, acknowledge, recognize, and come home. If we put off responding, say, I'll do it another time, there'll be more time. Don't, don't live your life thinking there's more time. Our life is but a hand breath from here to here, right? It's but a, a vapor. It's a snap. And, as, and the older you get, the more you realize that, right? The more it comes true. It's like, man, we are, I am quickly approaching my time with Jesus, which I'm excited about. But it becomes more urgent for us to tell others to live our lives in, in honest obedience to God the Father through Jesus Christ in us and His Spirit moving out of us so that others might come with us as we go home to Him. So don't put it off. Jesus would say to you, Don't put it off, for you don't know what is promised later today. Don't put it off. He's calling you home. We can't misuse the privileges of God or forget the kingdom belongs to God. We're just servants, right? We're humble servants to hear and to do. And He desires in us, here's where we grow. As we root ourselves in that position, we grow in the fruit in accordance with the fruit of repentance in our own lives, but also in the, in the proclamation to others to repent and the fruit to give back. We give back to His praise and to His glory. And so all of us are called to examine our own lives when we come to this parable. Are we rooted in God's patient love? Is that working out of us and around us? Are we rooted in leading others to the vineyard, to God's vineyard. See, that's what they were called to do, and they were not doing it. Let's keep going. Verses 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? It's probably my favorite line here. He's talking to religious leaders and Pharisees. They know the Scriptures. They're pretty good with it. And then he says to them, Tell me Jesus doesn't have a, a little sense of, 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 of kind of like punching you right in the face. She said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. What does Jesus do at this moment? He pronounces judgment against the chief priests and the Pharisees. We learn again that God's kingdom will be established despite Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Praise God. Not only in this parable do we see a glorious picture of God's love and his patience, but we see that God's kingdom is going to be established despite the rejection of Israel. And I would say, despite anything, nothing's going to stop God from doing that. Praise God. Jesus turns and he questions the people who are standing around, right? And immediately turns to an explanation of the parable. And he takes them to Psalm 118, which they would have known. It was actually something that was being... It's part of their, part of their uh, celebration there, the triumphal... It's something that they would sing together, okay? It's something that they would be familiar with. And he takes them to 118, and he basically says, Have you people never read what it says in Psalm 118, even though he knows that they probably have? Verses 22 and 23, he's saying, I just told you a parable that describes perfectly what God said would occur when he inspired the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118, 22, and 23. And those verses refer to the rejection of the chief cornerstone by the builders. And they would have thought that was David. But Jesus is saying, no, this is about me. These words apply to me. Do you not see it in the Psalms? It was predicted that those who were in the place of the builders of God's kingdom or tenant farmers of God's vineyard, they were going to reject the one, the one who would be the very cornerstone. Predicted a long time ago, and it's come about. That's what Jesus is trying to point them to. He's trying to say, listen, this was about me, and I'm here. So he takes one of the key themes of this psalm, as he's pointing out to them, he says, this is about me. I'm the one that everyone is singing about right now. I am the stone about to be rejected by you builders, religious leaders, and I'm going to be the primary cornerstone, become the primary cornerstone of a new building, a kingdom, despite your rebellion and rejection of me. So so the takeaway here is God's plans are never stopped or ended. You'll never stop them from happening, no matter what. He will fulfill his promises no matter what. There's an old rabbinic saying that goes something like this. If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. If a rock falls on a pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot is what Jesus was saying in verse 44. It's crushed either way. If you stumble over Christ as a Messiah, you're broken. If you oppose him, you're broken. Christ's kingdom will will be established no matter what. And he speaks it clearly in verse 41 and 43 that he's going to take the leadership away and the kingdom away from them and give it to others. He, He said that. And here again, Matthew alludes to the... This is a... An, an allusion to the inclusion of Gentiles into God's plan. Which is for us, right? It's not the first time Matthew's done it. It won't be the last, actually. Here in this passage, he's showing it doesn't matter whether the leaders you know, reject him or not. Accept him or reject him. His kingdom's going to be established. And so before, before them, they have a choice. They have a choice, right? They can either repent repent. Come into the kingdom and be blessed, or they can oppose it and be crushed by the stone. And this proposition is always presented. We have a choice. Where are you with Jesus and his kingdom? Are you coming home? Verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this par- heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Here we see the reaction of the leaders, right? And let me say, as we look at this passage, it reminds us that sometimes it's hard to tell the wounds of a friend. As Jesus comes speaking this message of judgment against the people who have usurped the authority of God, even Jesus' message of warning contains a message of love. Again, he's trying to bring them home. He's trying to show them that they would have responded in repentance in that moment. He would have welcomed them in. He would have opened his arms. But they didn't. And even the message of love was missed by these leaders because of their guilty conscience. One commentator said, Prophetic rebuke is not the act of somebody who does not like you, but rather someone who is so desperately concerned for your soul and sees the danger that you are in, that he appeals with all the force of his might that you would turn from that sin which will destroy you and embrace the blessing of God of God. You see the love in that. So if you have a friend who comes to you and you're in rebellion and you know it, you know it, and they come to you trying to point it out and it feels like they're stabbing or it's hurting. No, first of all, they're not excited about that moment in your friendship. But also, respect the the idea that they believed enough and care enough about you that they would take that risk. See, that's what Jesus was doing here. And when Jesus comes and pronounces this judgment against them, he does it in the spirit of the landowner, right? He does it in the spirit of wanting them to turn and come home. They're strong words, but they're words of grace, and they're designed to shake people out of a religious rebellion, right? Right? And bring them home and cause them to turn. But what did they do? I mean, they understood he was speaking about them. And instead of turning to him in, in, in forgiveness and in mercy and repentance, they decide to get rid of him or want to get rid of him. And the only thing that prevented them was the fear of other people. And I want to take a different little quick side note. Even though this wasn't for them, this is for us Don't let the fear of what others might think of you keep you from Jesus. Don't let the fear of what the eyes of others or the thoughts that other people may have about you keep you from coming to Jesus. Come home. Don't worry about what others may say or may think or or may even do. Come home. Because the greatest place for us to be is home with Jesus. And so their reaction shows their hearts, right? The way we respond to God's word to us is a mark of the presence or the absence of grace. If you find yourself responding to God's word with rebellion, like, I don't care. I don't care about that. I don't care what the word says. Or with apathy, where you just said, well, that's fine for others, but not for me. Rebellion or apathy puts us right where the Pharisees and religious leaders were. And that's why this parable isn't just for them. It's for us. We don't stand back in cold, detached judgment from them, right? We stand under the word. And in the warning, we see the hope. We see the love. We see the patient love. Because Jesus is saying, You deserve judgment, but by my death, I'll give you the vineyard if you'll put your trust in me. Is that you today? Is that you? Will you put your trust in him? Are you rooted in the patient love of God in your life? Are you rooted in God's authority and ownership of it all? Are you rooted in rebellion? Are you rooted in rescue? Are you rooted in the fact that, that we are called as the, the workers in the vineyard to, to produce the fruit, to tell others to proclaim? Jesus says, listen, through my death, there's a path home. And that route." becomes a rock that you stand on for your whole life until you go home forever. And we're going to remember this in communion. So I'm going to invite the team out invite you to go ahead and grab your communion cup. Jesus wanted them to trust him. But you know what happens. If you read the rest of the story, they actually do seize him and they crucify him. And if you remember the parable, it says that they drug the son out of the vineyard and killed him. That's what they did to Jesus on Calvary. They drug him out of Jerusalem and they killed him. But through his death, his burial and his resurrection, you and I have hope. We have a, a place that we can find rest and refuge a place that we can find strength and comfort, a place where we can go to that brings peace and understanding. Nothing on earth, nothing can give us what Jesus gives us. And we remember what he gives us through communion. We remember what he's brought to us through communion. We, re- we remember and we reflect and we allow it not just to be a ritual, but something that stirs us so the first of every month, we try to take our time and taking communion together and rem- being reminded Jesus didn't hold anything back. He gave everything for us. And he calls us home to him so that, that in the moment we find the, the warmth of a loving embrace of a, of a heavenly father, of a, of a savior, of a king. And he strengthens us. And for now, he sends us back out which is going to happen in just a few minutes. And when we go back out, we go back out stirred. We go back out changed, transformed, strengthened, given endurance, given what we need to go back out and to live in a way that that leads people to Christ, not to ourselves, not to our kingdom, but to Jesus. So we don't just come to the communion table to remember and reflect, but we come also to be refreshed Go back out in knowing that we want more people to join us at the celebration of the communion table because they too have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes. And so we remember. And so let's take off the first top and let's take that little wafer out. And let's remember, this is a symbol, Jesus' body, broken. For every single one of us, you can look around the room. All of you watching online, if you have communion elements, if you're a, if you're a believer, this, if you're one of His, this is for you. You can look around and go, His body was broken for all of us. Look at yourself. Look to those around you. Every one of us. That's what makes us one. It's what unites us. Jesus, His body was broken. So God, as we take this right now, So we remember and reflect that Jesus didn't hold anything back. He gave it all for us to be one, for us to be together, for us to walk home and on our way home to invite others with us. God, stir us again, refresh us, strengthen us, comfort us to know that everything's going to be okay. For all eternity, we're with you forever. Let's take this together. Go ahead and open up your juice. A symbol of the precious blood, the only blood that that could wash us clean. There was no other animal. There was no other person. There was nothing. It had to be Jesus. He was the only one, and he is the only way. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ through the washing of his blood, through the repentance and faith and belief. Jesus just simply said, believe, believe, transfer the trust of your own heart, of your own kingdom, of your own throne onto Jesus. Let him sit on the throne of your heart forever and ever and you will be with him forever and ever. And we remember that as we take the juice representative of his blood. So let's take this together. Father, God, have your way in this moment. God, remind us that you're, that you're bigger than we could ever, ever imagine. God, we sometimes shrink you down, sometimes put you in, in a box, sometimes put you in, in places that, do, that seems like you can't even figure out how to work in our lives or through our lives. God, let us be reminded as we sing this song that you're bigger than we think. You're able to handle our problems, our our fears, our, our drifting away. You're able to handle our rebellion. You're able to handle our sin. You're able to take all of that. If we could simply, in a posture of humility, come to you and lay it before you as we sing to your glorious majesty. God, thank you for this moment, for this grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.